and, and sugarcane spirits even more than agave spirits are like w- just very wildly and we we just got in a couple like of the craziest sugarcane spirits i've ever tasted that i'm super excited on and, and just constantly figuring out how do i get this in people's glass and how do i show people this is what rum can be hey everybody welcome to the decoding cocktails podcast i'm your host chris lebeau the goal of this show is to understand the inner workings and evolution of mixology hospitality and community as i further my own knowledge of the field i'm inviting you to join me you'll hear me interview people from around the industry about their work and beliefs if you like what you hear The best way to keep up is to subscribe via the podcast app you use. And if you think others will like this, I invite you to share an episode or write a review. Your words help grow our audience. And you can keep up with the latest news via our newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, or see what we're working on via Instagram. And please reach out. I'd enjoy hearing what you liked, learned, and what else you'd like to see me dig into. So let's get into it. My guest today is Tim Wiggins. He's the co-owner and beverage director of the restaurant and cocktail bar Retreat Gastropub, as well as Yellowbelly, an island-inspired restaurant with a strong rum program, and Lacey Tiger, a cocktail bar that opened during the pandemic in September of 2020. At just 30 years of age, Tim has proven to be innovative and ahead of the curve in the wine and spirits industry. He's received an array of accolades, including a Top 40 Under 40 Tastemaker of 2020 by Wine Enthusiast, and Feast Magazine named him as one of five innovators shaping the St. Louis culinary scene. Under the helm of Wiggins and his co-owner and business partner, Travis Howard, they've been applauded for their work and investments made in the Central West End neighborhood, where their establishments are located. Not only does Tim create inventive cocktails, but he's also focused on delivering an unmatched hospitality experience. Throughout his restaurant and bar concepts, Tim builds up his team, encourages growth and education, and most importantly, has fun. Tim is a proud St. Louisan who works to give back to the community in which he lives and works to provide a healthy and happy place for his son to grow. So as you'll hear in this interview, uh, I've known Tim for many years and consider him to be the person who's had the most impact on my cocktail trajectory. And he is uh, a very generous person who's often been very open to the endless litany of questions that I've had. So in this interview, we'll bounce around a little bit, but we start with talking about our what we remember to be our first cocktails that we had and that were supposedly quote unquote crafted. And it's cool to hear him remember that and recount uh, the varying flavors that he in, uh, encountered in that drink. A couple of the things that I think are worth noting at the outset. We will talk about a tasting flight of spirits that are available at Yellow Belly and Lazy Tiger. And it's all agave spirits, and they're all unaged, so they're all clear spirits. And as Tim will say, that a lot of times when we see something that is aged, we tend to think of that as, ah, okay, this might be a sipping spirit versus clear spirits, not necessarily. And that when we encounter that, that it doesn't just belong in a cocktail, that it can stand on its own, he feels like that's one of the things that with his guests over time, when they discover they really love flights like these, that now you have a new level of permission to pull people in even further into things. One thing that I've talked about quite a bit on the podcast that I first learned about from Tim is Ricea, which is uh, a spirit not not too dissimilar from how mezcal is made. However, there are some nuance in there. And in this, you'll hear Tim talk about the array of flavors and aromas that they have discovered inside of Ricea, and why at times, and I've heard this from a number of people in class too, at times it can actually be very much a preferred spirit over mezcal, because for some people, the smoke that mezcal holds is ultimately just more than they are looking for. The final thing I wanted to touch on, and we'll get to this later in the interview, 
is I always ask guests, is there anything you want to talk about in the interview? And Tim said, I want to talk about what it makes, what it takes to build a great team. And you'll hear him mention some things that are, that are just fun to hear him talk about things as minor as a squeegee to realize like, oh, like when he was washing dishes, despite them having had dishwashers who have been at retreat at the time of this interview for five and a half years, um, He's like, oh, like I discovered the squeegee we had sucked. And, and so he's like, so I went out and bought one that was, you know, probably 10 times more than the other one. And, you know, Tim talking about how little investments like that can oftentimes make a big difference. But of course, them being on the floor and present, not just hanging out. Oh, I own a bar, but uh, participating in every single task imaginable in that uh, in the establishment. And so. I just felt that that was a pretty powerful thing because there's the flashy parts of the food and the drinks that come with something like this, but it's really the people, as he will say, that make his establishments go every day. And so with that, I will turn it over uh, to Tim, and uh, I hope you enjoy our discussion. This is the Decoding Cocktails podcast, and uh, my guest today is Tim Wiggins, owner, proprietor of Yellow Belly and Lazy Tiger. And Tim, thank you for coming in today. I of course. It. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here. I, I just needed to start, you know, <clears throat> when I think about my own cocktail arc, mm-hmm. you know, started probably back 2009 or 10, and for years it didn't really move, and then I started investing in it, but I think about you introducing me to the Death & Co. books, mm. which really accelerated my learning. Sure. I think about rum now being my go-to spirit. Mm-hmm. I think about at Retreat, your other spot, having my first taste, courtesy of you, of Agricole, yeah. and being like, what <laughs> is going on here? Yeah. And so if anything, I just wanted to first say thanks for being like a coach and guide along the way, um, because it's been very helpful. Oh, of course. No, I, I mean, that's my... What gets me most excited is is you know sh- showing people things they haven't had yet that are and then seeing the the excitement met you know at an at an equal level is like it's it's encouraging for me definitely so speaking of that excitement, one of the things I was curious because I can think about my own what I think is my one of my more genesis moments, but do you remember um like in terms of like the first time you kind of experienced a cocktail being mm-hmm. crafted? You know, sometimes we may not remember what the drink is, right, you right. Might, but like, you know, how you felt, maybe where you were, like, yeah. what do you remember about that at all? I, I actually do have a pretty vivid memory of uh, my roommate at the time was dating this girl and was, you know, trying to find impressive dates when, you know, we were just uh, 21-year-old kids who, you know, didn't know anything about much of anything. And I, at the time, was working at a restaurant, um, but just to make money. And, uh, we went to taste and I remember walking in, I remember the flushing the toilet, you know, I remember, uh, Dave Gretemann and Kyle Mathis and Joel and like seeing these people that I'm now, you know, close friends with, but at the time we're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like I, it truly was, different than anything I'd experienced. And then I had a last word cocktail and I remember tasting it and just this like, wow moment of like, what is this, you know? And, and the, the, yeah, that moment of like, whatever this is, is so intriguing, is so amazing. Like, I, I need to know more about this. And it was kind of shortly after that, uh, I was asked to move to the like whiskey bar and cocktail bar of, and manage that place, which I was totally ill prepared for or ready for. Um, but at the same time, you know, saying yes to that was like still thinking about the taste of that, like chartreuse, maraschino, gin, lime combination of like this magical elixir that I was like, I need, I need to figure out this magic. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you say that too, because my first moment was really at the original taste. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I don't really remember what I had, but I remember walking in there and it being so small and everybody mm-hmm. being so clad. And I mm-hmm. remember looking at 
at the time was a blood and sand cocktail, like mm -hmm. seeing things like cherry herring at the time. I was mm -hmm. like, what is this? And I, <laughs> I just remember the drink world feeling so upside down at that moment mm. that that's when, as I would say, like I started to become insufferable to my girlfriend at the time of like, I need to know more about this stuff. <laughs> um, because it was just presented so on its head mm -hmm. compared to what, you know, so, so understated mm. as opposed to like flamboyant or frankly, just to some of the bars I was going to at that age, just like party and nothing else. So, right. So right. It, was, it was interesting in that regard to me. Would you mind talking for a minute about the agave family mm -hmm. and how, you know, perhaps in certain corners of the country, it's been more exposed for a while, mm -hmm. but we're really beginning to see this explosion of uh, the family of the agave plant, like Ricea versus Mezcal versus mm -hmm. tequila. Do you mind talking about this for a moment? Yeah. So I, I mean, at Lazy Tiger, our um, little more experimental uh, cocktail bar, uh, Ricea and agave spirits and sugarcane spirits have been kind of the the most exciting thing to us and so we have ricea in i think six of the cocktails of the like you know 16 cocktails right now um and really the way you know i have kind of heard and read that i find it most clearly um explained is that you know with tequila it being one type of agave plant the blue weber and it's you know it's steamed like you're gently cooking a vegetable and that the idea is to preserve freshness and a clean flavor and so if you think of steaming broccoli to get this like moist plump like clean flavor and then ricea would be throwing that in a uh open flame pizza oven that's getting charred but it's still retaining a lot of like juicy freshness um and that the smoke is escaping and then if you were to throw it in a barbecue pit that would be more like mezcal if you're gonna get like the charred smoky mm. really intensely earthy flavors and so if you like mezcal you're gonna like ricea it's just less smoky it's a little more acidic because uh you know it's it's using agave plants that have less sugar and so when they're cooked they're not getting as carbonized and you get lots of like limey minerally like sharp uh lemongrass tones um and then if you like tequila but you're not keen on the smoky you know uh, like charred aspect of mezcal, uh, ricea is a great option because, you know, it has earthiness, but it's not, it's not really smoky. You know, like I said, it's more like that, that pizza slice that has a little bit of char on the bottom that you get, you know, that, that, uh, earthiness, but mostly it tastes fresh. Um, so for people that are kind of, <clears throat> yeah, that I feel like mezcal is something that you're certain, certainly you're seeing more proliferate across the, the general increasingly across the mm -hmm. general uh, drinking experience. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, for some people, it can begin to hit some of those like um, those scotch level notes yeah. and can be like, ooh, is this, is this too much for me? And obviously there's going to be variation. Right. But you're saying that ricea is kind of a stair step. It is, Between yeah. tequila and that. Totally. And I see it as... Uh... I see it as the stair step. It's also has a lot more variance. You know, it, it is legally, it is recently having regulation. Um, but I kind of, I was telling someone the other day that I was like, this Ricea is so exciting because in Mexico, you know, it was kind of this moonshine. It was, it wasn't the sought after sexy spirit that like, you know, we're in America and we're getting these bottles of $120 Ricea and we're geeking out about it. And I just see these like, you know, these folks in Mexico just laughing like, <laughs> no, like, oh, okay. Like you think this is super exciting, but 10 years ago, like no one wanted this. Um, and it's because they use you know, it's, it can be distilled in a tree trunk. It can be, you know, made in these really, really raw, uh, like simple, you know, super kind of like primitive methods. It's like so exciting that what you're getting across each race is so different. Um, and that you're really tasting like a family's recipe, you know, that it's, it's, you know, even with regulation that's, uh, been recently coming, it's, uh, a lot of them are, you know, still made how their family makes it. And that's just, you know, you're, you're, you're getting this really unique 
like actually small batch, you know, 300 bottle small batch um, that, you know, La Venenosa is the brand that really said, hey, let's make Ricea accessible to people. Let's sell it at a cocktail price point. Let's start getting it out there so that people see it as a, a cocktail spirit and a, an actual spirit, not just this really esoteric, impossible to find you know, moonshine of, from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they started bringing it in and this little company in based out of Kansas city distributes it to us, um, it really changed, uh, how we were doing cocktails at both yellow belly and, uh, lazy tiger because, because it's this ingredient that has more acid than tequila and less smoke than mezcal. And so you can kind of, it's, it's so versatile. And then because a lot of it is single distilled as soon as you add other ingredients to it it like explodes with different flavors you never tasted you know without anything added to it and so that i like one of them like the sear occidental like the more uh like western like you add anything to it and like it's very like watermelon jolly rancher and so you just get these wild flavors that you know i hadn't tasted from a spirit before hmm. I don't know if there's going to be a general set of rules for this, but, you know, when I'm talking with people, a lot of times it'll be, I don't like bourbon, or Mm -hmm. I don't like, and I'm sure you've heard this infinite more times than me, but one of the things I wonder, and so I'm curious about this from, like, we can talk about Ricea, and then tell me why the rules don't apply, but it's, Mm -hmm. there seems to be this lore right now, especially in the bourbon world, and maybe growingly in the tequila, uh, Mm -hmm. agave world, of... Well, this is so great that you have to drink it straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're feeling really risky, maybe you add some a little bit of water to it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, certainly as I've even come to understand, like taking most spirits and putting them in a highball with a lot of club soda, mm-hmm. uh, is gonna, you're going to be able to taste things when it's um, – you're going to be able to taste things when it is more um, uh, diluted, diluted mm-hmm. than when it's neat. So – for people when they're thinking about something as neat versus rocks mm-hmm. in a cocktail, uh, how do you coach people through what to do with something? Because mm-hmm. I feel like people are afraid that something is so craft that they're going to ruin it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's also things you're never going to taste when it's that hot. Kind of right. like also when your coffee is right out of the you know right out of the urn, mm-hmm. it is so warm. There's things you can't taste. Right like when it's at room temperature. So right. is there a way you would guide people through like tasting something in general? Is that- yeah. I mean, I think that we've seen it with a lot of, you know, in particular the high proof uh, agave spirits and sugarcane spirits that, you know, they're unaged. So a lot of times people aren't, they wouldn't even consider to sip on them or to make an old fashioned or like a really like, spirit forward cocktail because they see a clear spirit and they think cocktail you know of course i'd i'd shake this like i would tequila or gin or vodka um and so that's one of the things i think that is exciting about ricea is we do um an agave spirits flight that's a uh, a really nice tequila a nice ricea and mezcal just neat you know <clears throat> an ounce of each and I'm constantly shocked at how many people enjoy the neat ricea, you know, more than the mezcal Mm -hmm. because, you know, that like a lot of mezcals can come across medicinal and like really, really intense and have a a big nose on them. And a lot of times you just don't see people, especially in the States, just sipping mezcal. Um, But because ricea is a little bit more delicate and a little bit more floral and has like some sweet and sour notes, um, it can be more easily drank by itself. And so to me, it's, it's a lot about, you know, proof, how many times it was distilled, you know, and then saying, you know, if it is a clear spirit, you know, maybe you wouldn't think to just like add drops of water or a little bit of club soda. Um, but I do find that like, when we get in uh, new spirits, like we taste it neat, we taste it with water, and then we taste it in like a highball situation with no sweet and sour added just to see like, you know, and that's how we found out, you know, we got this, this uh, Ricea and we taste it. And I was like, you know, it's kind of boring, you know, in, in, you know, in comparison to the other ones we'd had and we added water to it and taste it. And we're like, no, 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 this is wild. Mm. It just was so tight 
you know, similar to a wine that just hadn't opened up. And I was like, okay, like this neat by itself isn't as exciting. But then with, you know, an ounce of water in it is insane. And so, you know, then we put it in a Paloma style highball cocktail. Then as soon as you add, you know, that, um, as soon as you open it up like that, it's, you know, this huge flavor and big aromatics. And so I think a lot of it is, you know, telling people like, you got to taste these three ways. Like you have to taste it by itself with a little bit of water and then a little bit of sparkling water to really see what you're working with. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's good. And I, I think it's one of the things that if anything, I'm always urging people is sure. If you've bought really, really expensive stuff, maybe one, uh, when I'm teaching somebody about cocktails, one, take your expensive stuff and please put it away <laughs> right. uh, for the most part. But it's like giving people permission to just play with it a little mm-hmm. bit as opposed to treating every drop as so sacred that you never touch it. Right. Um, right. To understand what it's best for at right. that point in time. Yeah. And I, and I love that, you know, when you think of agave spirits, you're like, well, does it make a good margarita? You know, that's what the first thing is. And I'm like, hell yeah, it makes a great margarita. So let's start there. Let's right. like, let's start with the most comfortable, familiar thing you've had. Let's make a Paloma with it. And then we'll work towards, you know, trying it in an old fashioned, trying it just by itself. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it doesn't have, you know, you wouldn't buy, you know, Macallan 12 and be like, yeah, I love it in the penicillin. You know, you're just like, that would be, you know, seemingly crazy because it has this prestige. Um, but, you know, clear spirits and especially sugarcane and agave spirits just don't have that, like, you know, me, you know, because no one's buying a $120 bottle of rice sea off the shelf, you know, there's not this like, oh, you, you have to drink it like this. You can only do this with it. So we get to say, you know, we get to make the rules of you can do whatever you want with it, which is, is more fun. It is is cool, and I, I certainly saw it as well with like rum as well. For so many people, like their 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 knowledge is Captain Morgan, mm-hmm. and so you get to if anything, you give them that first daiquiri, and they're like, okay, wait, I thought I knew what this spirit was. I don't. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell me what I'm supposed to do with totally. it? Totally. So, uh, so that's fun. It is so fun, and and sugarcane spirits even more than agave spirits are like just very wildly and we we just got in a couple like of the craziest sugarcane spirits i've ever tasted that i'm super excited on and and just constantly figuring out how do i get this in people's glass and how do i show people this is what rum can be um because when they taste it it's 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 amazing you know and it's it's not this weird you know, it's 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 not that much different than what they've had. It's just a much better version. Hmm. Wow. So I saw you write in an interview one time when uh, someone said um, uh, a thing you wouldn't allow behind the bar ever, mm. and it was bad ice. Mm-hmm. Do you mind uh, breaking down what bad ice is when, like, how, do, how should someone know if they have mm-hmm. bad ice? Um, and is there anything that is not great that will suffice. So how would you mm. think about for the average person at home understanding if they have bad ice on right. hand or not? And obviously it's going to be different at Yellow Belly and Lazy sure. Tiger than at home. Right. I think, I mean, people at home can't have a freezer that they dedicate to just ice. You know, I understand that. And I think that people don't understand that like ice can quote unquote go bad. You know, if it's been in your freezer for more than 45 days, it probably tastes like your freezer to a certain extent. And if you're going to make, you know, a pretty straightforward, simple cocktail with this ice, you know, you're going to, you're going to taste it. You know, if you let the ice sit out on the counter and melt and then you drink it, it doesn't taste like your tap water. And that is a problem. Um, And I think that that, you know, can be a test of like, well, how's this ice? Okay, we'll throw a cube in a, in a glass, wait a second, drink it. If it tastes kind of stale and funky, like, probably need some fresh ice. Um, and so, yeah, I, I constantly tell people like the, the tough thing about ice, especially at the restaurants that it just has to be consistent because all of our recipes and timing is, is based on the particular types of ice. And so, you know, if you were to say, you know, I usually use cold draft in our ice well, you know, these big, you know, big cubes, but now we're using hotel ice or just like the sheet little types of ice, it's going to dilute at a drastically different ratio. And now you're talking about 
watery, over diluted, not cold enough, like all these problems happen. And so I just did an event in Kansas City on Friday that, you know, I get there and I'm, I'm, I'm preparing myself for what type of ice am I going to use? What does this timing look like? And, if, and, you know, and it's hotel ice. It's not, you know, a restaurant. They don't have fancy, expensive ice machines. And so I just have to recalibrate, you know, how much is added, how long it's being stirred, what temperature should I start this cocktail with before I add the ice. Um, and so, yeah, it it is a terrifying thing to have your ice machine not working correctly or i mean and it's been more often than not has been the case uh over the last month i think yellow belly and retreats uh ice machine has gone down twice um and it's yeah it's this like if you run out of a specific spirit or liqueur or you know you can swap you can be crafty but that ice machine goes down and i'm i feel helpless (laughs) as a general rule just to make sure i think i've heard this before but for Anybody, you know, doing this at home, if you have hotel ice, also Mm -hmm. probably can think of it as the ice you're buying at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. I've always heard it as you kind of, if you're shaking a cocktail or stirring it, you Mm -hmm. probably want to have add a lot more than you usually would Mm -hmm. because you're looking to, because you want to get it chilled quickly Mm -hmm. because it's going to be melting fast. Yes. So you would, I would probably be, I would be inclined if I was doing it to like fill a shaker pretty heavily with that ice. Mm -hmm shake it for a little bit shorter of a time and then mm-hmm. get it out of there. And you're going to want fresh ice if you want it on the rocks right. because it's just going to melt a lot totally. faster. I think there's the two ways to look at it. Is either you add more and you do a really short shake or you add like half the amount you need and you basically know that it's going to all be diluted by the time you're shaking it. Got it. But the fear of adding too much and shaking it for a little bit too long, there's no going back from that. And I always tell people, like, if you're going to do anything, get it under diluted. You can always throw a cube in there. But as soon as it's over diluted, there's nothing you can do. That is a great point. Um, so a couple more things from, like, a guest standpoint, and then I have a couple other little ones for you. Um, mm-hmm. So if a patron is feeling overwhelmed at the restaurant, they're looking at the menu. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys have a lot of cool things going on, but they're newer to the game. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is a, an intimidation factor of either looking like an idiot mm-hmm. or um, offending someone. You know, you guys have spent a lot of time working on these recipes. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's not rocket scientists, but like, how, do, how, sh- how should people in, in approach a bartender mm. respectfully, confidently to ask a question? Right. I think that it first starts with the bartender being available and making it known that, you know, I'm here to guide you through this. Like starting with, can I answer any questions is different than, you know, can I get you a drink? You know, cause as soon as it's opened up, I find people are like, yeah, I've got eight questions. And I'm like, that's what I'm here for. I'm excited to answer these questions and instead of, you know, what can I get you? Oh, well, I kind of have a question, you know, and now it's like, can I, can I ask a question instead of like, I'm ready for your questions, you know? And sometimes people are like, oh, we're ready. You know, we're ready. I'm like, well, like, especially right now with this, you know, you know, mask and distancing situation, like this is kind of all I get is answering <laughs> your questions. Um, and so I think that it starts there, but it also is, you know, so helpful to say like, hey, I'm still looking through the menu. You know, I... I really just drank, you know, vodka cranberry, you know, ultimately that's, that's kind of where I'm working with. And, you know, especially my staffs, we're constantly talking about like, people are going to know what they like. They're going to know what they not, what they don't like. And you need to understand the cocktails on the menu well enough that you can say, okay, well, I have this like cherry lemongrass gimlet that could be reduced to a vodka cranberry if it really had to be, you know? So if you say, you know, I, I know I like vodka cranberry and I hate bananas. It's like, okay, well, what, what do you think of gin? Uh, it's okay. Okay. Well, like, let's, let's try, you know? And I think that saying one thing you like and one thing you hate is just, it's a ton of information for the bartender and it should let them you know, it's you saying, well, what's miso or jat? 
you know, it's like, well, we can talk about Mesa Orjot, but I still don't know if you're going to like it or not, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that really being open with, you know, I, I don't know what this is going to taste like. Um, you know, what would you, what would you relate it to? Is this going to be like a Mai Tai? Is this going to be like this? You know, and, and a lot of times I love that question because I'm like, no, not at all. Like the fact that you saw this list of ingredients and thought, is this going to be like a Mai Tai is intriguing to me because now I want to know like, oh, okay. Like, no, it's not, but I can tell you what is. And now we can have a conversation of like, what made you think this is going to be like that? That's fun. Um, so I think that it comes first from the bartender opening the dialogue and then also the guests being vulnerable and ready to say, you know, I want a fun cocktail and I know I like this and I know I hate this. And the problem is it's, it's risky. It's a lot of trust. I don't do that. I don't go in. I mean, I do it in certain bars that I've been to just to kind of test the staff but like i find it terrifying to order something that i really don't know what it's going to taste like and at this point i can read the ingredients and have a really really close idea of what it's going to taste like and but that's 99 percent of people aren't doing that and so i find that it's part of the menu construction on my end is that ultimately these need to be dynamic exciting and unique but also 75 to 80% of people need to be able to order anything on the menu and be happy because as soon as I order something and I don't really like it, I'm just, I'm just going to get a glass of wine or a beer or maybe a Manhattan, you know, it's like you just remove that, that trust. And so, uh, I sympathize with the guests in that way of putting yourself out there to say, I want to try this or can you answer a question about this, even though I don't really know about it? Um, because it's, it is, it's risky. It's, it's $12. It's a lot of money to get something that you don't enjoy, not just something that's okay. You should, you should be happy that you're drinking it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I put most of the weight on the bar staff because if you're not comfortable asking those questions, it's probably because you you think, oh, I will be judged or I will be, you know, looked down upon for not knowing these things when, yeah, if, if as the bartender, you're not excited to answer those questions, then uh-huh. do something else. So I, I am curious about um, menu construction a little bit and preface. So like, I, I think about um, at times, like on certain sections of like the Lazy Tiger menu, mm-hmm. I know one of the things I reference often during class is, you know, people at times, egg white in, in particular, also mm-hmm. whole egg. Mm-hmm. People are like, what? You can, yeah. what am I drinking? Right. But I love that on when you have kind of these flip style uh, cocktails on your menu. I remember one time it's like, if you eat raw uh, cookie dough, because <laughs> like giving people that analogy, they're like, oh, I guess I did that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. I guess I do eat raw raw eggs a lot. Right. I've heard artists sometimes talk about if I give too much away in an abstract, then am I leaving any room for people to interpret and making and make this painting what they mm-hmm. should see in it? So I guess I'm curious. Like sometimes I feel like on portions of your menu, you're giving like what's a clarified cocktail or what's mm-hmm. what's an egg cocktail look mm-hmm. like. Um, do you have any thoughts around the idea of like this drink is it's a little bit smoky it's a little bit this it's a little bit this like when mm-hmm. are we giving away too much or our interpretation do you feel like that could ever help or does it take away from right. the menu I think that it can do both I think that the setting really really matters you know I see I've seen bars that are really high volume uh, utilize something where they don't even list ingredients that they list what, you know, tasting notes, you know, similar to a lot of wine menus, you'll just see three words. And I think it can help if you, if you really are trying to like really simplify it and just say, Hey, look, if you like cherry pie and, you know, wildflowers, that's what this cocktail tastes like. I think it can be cool, but I think that 
in like at, at my concepts, I want a little bit more of a dialogue, you know, and I, it's very intentional when we put things, you know, instead of listing um, an exact ingredient at times, because it, it's like instead of putting raspberry infused Bianco bitter, which to a lot of people is just like, what the hell is that? You know, putting like bitter raspberry or just raspberry, because there are certain times that it just doesn't matter that you really understand this. And there are other times that we do want to dialogue on it. You know, Genepe, putting heirloom Genepe, like seems to be something people want to know about it. People are super intrigued by it and it's fun to talk about. And it's something that most everyone thinks is delicious. And so like, let's talk about that. But let's not talk about these three vermouths that we blended and then put dehydrated raspberries in because you don't care you don't care you know and i think that you know it's us picking and choosing what do we want to talk about what do we want to highlight what is just nerdy heady things that that we think you know this this blend of three vermouths instead of just one makes that much of a difference um you know so yeah i think that i think that it is like at least in my opinion on our menus is like very intentional what we want to highlight and what we what we think is like intriguing but not confusing Mm -hmm. and i think that that's a lot of part of it is like uh, each drink should have a component that you find intriguing but not so confusing that it's you just skip to the next one which i think is kind of a fine line yeah, and I guess real quick I'll add, you know, having been in to your spot, uh, that when like looking at something even as simple as like Mai Tai, I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. as opposed to Orjat, which the average person's gonna be like, What's that? Mm-hmm. I think you just have almond on mm-hmm. there, which like, oh like like you you don't need to know like we don't need to dissect this word you're not gonna know. Right. You need to know there's almond right. in this drink. So. That's a good example of also I look at it and I'm like, This is an allergy concern. Correct. This is something that it's a word that people don't know how to say. Yep. And it's also something that like, you know, you read rum, curacao, and you're already like curacao. Okay, like I'm pretty sure that's orange. And then there's orgiat next to it. And you're like, okay, next cocktail. Yep. You know, it's like back-to-back things that are a little bit strange and hard to say yep. in, in Yellow Belly setting is just unnecessary. Yep. And so if it, if it is a cocktail that has one of these things, you're like, okay, then let's let's work with that. And and even listing, like there are probably almost every drink probably has a component in it that isn't listed. Sure. Because it's it's not worth the confusion. Or, you know, it's it's in an amount that mainly provides aromatics or or color correction or something that just isn't worth you know i campari is my secret thing that like it may be in a lot of the cocktails but it's never listed because people will skip over it because they have a negative connotation when it like that's that's the problem is people are eliminating choices because they think they know what it's going to taste like you know and if you don't list campari in your negroni and there's an ounce of it like you're being an asshole but if you put two five of it in a whiskey sour riff just to like really kind of correct the sweetness like no one's then then it's okay that's cool so you know one of the things i've been interested in always is certainly a bar as more like public house Mm -hmm. public space Mm -hmm. and so obviously you have a front row seat to that in a way Mm. and we've seen that really turned upside down and so, one, I'd be interested in terms of your view on crafting a space people want to come to, but mm-hmm. I know part of that also starts with hiring the right people. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about that in terms of, I mean, if I'm, I may, obviously this is an industry that's very famous for great hospitality, but also famous for uh, wild turnover. Right. And also at times um, infamous for misbehaving. Right, right. So how do you think about like turning that on its head and trying to build it. Cause I know that's important to you. Yeah. I think that, you know, Travis and I, my business partner and I both came from an environment that we saw, we saw a bit of both, you know, you're, you're in the industry, you see the inevitable uh, behavior and uh, you know, the kind of lack of professionalism that is just 
the kind of the norm in the industry of like, this is just what people are doing while they're doing something else. And it's, it's fun. It's social. Um, but there's this, you know, there's not too many people that actually take it seriously enough that, you know, would say, this is my career. This is what I do. And a lot of that is because society looks down on that. And it's like, you're a server, you're a bartender, you're a restaurant manager. Like maybe you should go back to school. Maybe, you know, maybe there's something that's, you know, a little, a little more polished. Um, and I think that it makes people, you know, kind of scared to own that, that career, that job, even at the time. And so a lot of our vision was, you know, creating like the, the anti-restaurant restaurant of like, how do you get professional people acting professionally in a space that is easy to, uh, have some drinks while working to be really, really, uh, social and fun with guests, you know, you have this opportunity to be more, uh, to have more fun and to just be more free. There's less structure than, you know, showing up and sitting at a desk. And so it was a lot about finding the personality, you know, cause you, I see each store like has its personality. I know where it lives. I know where it lived. I know what the soundtrack is. And like, to me, it's about like, all right, this entity and like, seeing what it is and then all right how do we match that with personalities that work inside of it because to the guest the personality of the restaurant is so much the personality of the staff and if you walk in and people are smiling and giving each other high fives and you know laughing and you're like well this is kind of a fun place you know people want to be here this is a you know this is this is the vibe and when you see lots of hands behind the back and stern and straight and you know crisp clean long uh, aprons and then you're like okay well now I've got a vibe of what this is and I hear classical music playing so I think that there's the staff and the environment like really allows people to like catch the vibe of how should I feel about this space and how, uh, you know, it is that comfortable to me or not. And so I think a lot of it was not hiring people who had been in the industry for a long time because, you know, there's, there's a lot of baggage that comes with it, you know, and even if it's just frustration about previous places and, you know, just trying to get away from, okay, well, here's a smart person who who's willing to work in the restaurant industry. I will train you and mold you and kind of show you like, Hey, this is, this is how we're going to act, you know? And eventually you have a culture of people who don't have bad habits and don't have the trauma from so many of the other restaurants. And so, you know, as a mix of you need the experts or the professional bartenders and servers that you can put on the floor and just go and you don't have to babysit, but more than that, you need the people who are listening and eager to learn. And they, you know, they, they come from more of a structured professional background. And so they don't have the propensity to think, you know, well, my last place, we were allowed three beers while working. Like what's, how many am I allowed here? And it's like, okay, like let's, let's just start with a, a clean slate. And so, but I think it's that as much as you know, it's from the top down. Like if you're, if your owner, your manager, your GM aren't setting the tone that this is a professional space, you cannot ever expect to, to hold your staff, you know, to the same standards. And so, um, we saw it as, you know, Travis and I, when we opened retreat, we're there sweeping and mopping the floors every day. We weren't having drinks. You know, we, there was, there wasn't the, you know, it was like, Hey, clock out and get out of here, go to the arms, go do whatever you need to do. But this space must remain, you know, professional in order for this to like really be sustainable. And so I think a lot of it was, yeah, from the top down of we're going to do it the right way because we want this to last. And this isn't just, we didn't open a restaurant because we want to have a place to drink and show off. And, you know, because we think it's cool, you know, it's like, this is, this is our, career that you know that we're taking seriously hmm. you know it makes me <clears throat> when you talk about washing the floor mopping the floor mm-hmm. um i remember and you can hear you know iterations of this anywhere but i remember you know and we can talk about what he experienced in the kitchen you know but anthony bourdain saying mm-hmm. that like i feel like every you know owner should spend some time you know washing dishes and whatnot mm-hmm. again and and i've seen that you know 
in a career pivot myself of when, you know, does a CEO, when are they so locked in the ivory tower, Mm -hmm. you know, when can they go spend a handful of minutes on the front line to remember what the heck that's like? One, to remember what your people are going through. And second, for Mm -hmm. them to see you going through that is important in terms of um, not being above or better than that. Right. Yeah, I think that there's a it so quickly becomes a disconnect between the the staff and the management and the ownership and you know it's kind of the the double-edged sword of of the restaurant industry of I feel like the second I don't know how to optimize the dishwasher's job, the busser's job, the bartender's job, as soon as I can't say, "Hey, I bought this, I changed this, I moved this. It's making your life easier, faster, better." You know, the, as soon as I'm that disconnected, like I, you know, I fear uh, that that's when things will start to slip. And when the when the staff knows, like, hey, here's this person who, you know, ultimately is in charge, can has buying power. This is, you know, this is the top person, you know, in the room and they want my job to be easier. They care that I have a good shift, you know, and can spend, you know, $50 on the nice squeegee for my station is like, okay, I, I want to work here. I like this place, you know, and I think that when you talk about employee retention and, you know, ensuring people have, you know, feel valued, you know, a lot of times it's the, the littlest things of like, hey, I washed dishes for 30 minutes last night and this squeegee sucks. So I bought a new one and they're like, yeah, it does suck. I'm like, well, you, tell me next time, you know, like we, you know, the, the, you know, whether you came from a place that didn't have nice sponges or squeegees, like we're not that place. <laughs> we want everyone to feel like they have the tools and they have, you know, the empowerment to say, you know, Hey, I need this. It'd make my job easier. And like, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Like, because, you know, that's why we have two dishwashers that have been at retreat for five and a half years. They were two initial hires, both been there for five and a half years. People lose their mind when they hear that because it's the position that you can never fill for more than six months at a time. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, we'll pay you to do a good job. You know, one of them does one and a half people's work. And so it's paid one and a half times what, you know, someone would. And so, uh, it's not just about, hey, we're going to throw a couple dollars more per hour. A lot of it is like pe- like the people, the highest people care that I'm here and care that I have, you know, hot water and, you know, the basic things. I'm sure there are many, but top of mind, is there, you know, a drink or ingredient that comes to mind that you've perhaps not only changed your mind, but you've seen change a lot of guests' minds? So when you see mm-hmm. like a thing that you're you're passing all these things across the bar to people mm-hmm. things that often change their mind about a cocktail or an ingredient that mm. that, that makes them want to want to dive deeper mm, that's a good point i i think that i think that genepe is in that it hits that of um it it's it has a fun story it it is a category when most people think it's an it's a liqueur you know um it is delicious to almost everyone um it's super versatile um i think like what saint germain was you know genepe kind of is now that saint germain has kind of a you know there's a little bit of like oh yeah it's too easy you can put it in anything of course it tastes good so i think that there are those like hey you know averna amaro is one for me that like it just tastes like reduced Coca-Cola. It's good in, with almost every spirit and shaken and stirred applications. And it's also such an intro to bitterness that to me, it's one that starts the conversation of like, oh, this is Amaro? Like, I like this. But I tried that for net stuff and I didn't like that. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, let's talk about why you like this and why you don't like that. Um, and I And I think that in the same way, Rum Agricole has become that of, it's like, hey, what is this? Like, I've never had this flavor. I've never, I've definitely never had rum that tastes like this. I've never had a daiquiri that tastes like this. Like, this is, you know, a delicious but very intriguing profile. Um, so I, I think about the things that I use as my kind of secret weapon to be like, you may, 
you know, if, as soon as you think you're going to hate it and you love it, now it's like, now we're having a conversation. Um, and, and I think gin, it, you know, too many people drink a handle of terrible gin in college. And so the, the thought of, oh, I don't want this. This is going to taste like pine trees and, you know, vomit. And it's like, okay, well, the, let's work you towards liking this. Um, and so working with some of the new American gins, especially that are not super resiny and, and juniper forward, like the, the new leather being grapefruit gin is a, a cool example of like, let's put something in your glass that really starts this conversation about, whoa, I thought I hated this, but like, this is delicious. Got a, uh, got a buddy who's, you know, 20 years post-college and one bad tequila night and I can't I've, I've tried so hard to get yeah. him back on the train and like and, and, I, and I I do appreciate like I mean uh, th- there are those horror me- memories that I have too mm-hmm. but it's just also to recognize that I, as I've come to learn that like what so many of us were subjecting ourselves to so often mm-hmm. was just garbage oh, and yeah. at the time that until people like to then if they don't have too much of a trigger like give them Gilby's gin mm-hmm. next to Leatherby mm-hmm. and be like Oh damn! You know, right. you know, Captain right. Morgan next to Four Square, and be like, right. oh, maybe these aren't the same thing. Right. So, but and it's it's people I find I, I first saw it with coffee of people saying, you know, this my friend at the time said, if you can taste Quick Trip coffee and coffee at Sump and tell me which is which, like, I'll be shocked. I don't believe you can. And me being like. <laughs> You're crazy. Like you, like you have decided that all coffee tastes like this. Right. And people want that absolute, like tequila is bad. It tastes like this. Gin tastes like this. And so it's fun to say, hey, like this is what you've held on to. And like let's break that up a bit and, and, and show you something that, you know, you end up really, really enjoying. Sure. If people are having, you know, so they're having – gathering with close friends these days still at home uh their friends are coming over they don't want to be too much in the weeds making Mm -hmm. stuff anything that you think um they should batch or be just be prepared to punch out that's simple but fun that they could look up yeah i think if you're especially if you're wanting something like light and effervescent i think that it's why like spritz style cocktails just kind of exploded because anyone can make them there are two three ingredients you don't really need citrus which is a huge advantage um and i think that the like the you know batching or combining things in equal proportions is just like easy for people to say like buy a bottle of aperol buy a bottle of capoletti pour them in the same container add that to sparkling wine, maybe throw an orange wedge on it, and you have a super delicious cocktail. Um, And so I I always recommend the, like, do something with sparkling wine that's potentially even spirit-free. You can drink way more of it. The balance is is way less important. You know, three ounces in bubbles, one ounce in bubbles, it all tastes good. You know, it's never tasting too boozy or too hot. And so – and also – everyone loves it you hate vodka you hate gin you hate whiskey well none of that's there it's just like it's you know fortified and or liqueurs and sparkling wine so i highly recommend that i also find that the old-fashioned manhattan you know negroni if you're down for the bitterness are so easy to batch and even just you know two bottles of vermouth one bottle or two bottles of whiskey one bottle of vermouth some bitters put it in a camber when they put it in an iced tea jug in the fridge and pour it over ice and like it it's it's perfect every single time and so um part of the class i was doing on friday in kansas city was kind of trying to demystify and simplify like you know this is how you should make your simple syrup use the scale use water at this temperature and then batch it into your whiskey and make your old-fashioned keep it in the fridge Pour it over ice, like make your life easier. And to the guest that comes over, that you just pour old fashioned in their glass and give them a little orange. It's it's ama- it's magical, it's amazing. And people, because people don't think that it's possible to, you know, spend you spend twenty minutes and then you have a month and a half worth of cocktails to have. I mean, that's I, I 
can't, I can't stand making cocktails at the house. It's the last thing I want to do. And so I constantly find myself, I'm like, but I will batch some and then keep it in the fridge, you know, and or make a lime cordial with sugar and lime juice. And then if I want a margarita or a gimlet or something, like I have a fairly shelf stable thing that I can use. Um, because if I want a cocktail, I want it now. I don't, I don't want to spend the time, you know, fussing around with it and spending 30 minutes to make it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I feel like that's certainly one of the other things I encounter a lot is just people are often looking for an additional riff or they want to take it up a notch. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's fine. Do you, but Mm -hmm. I feel like at times you're just putting more, you know, inertia between yourself and actually getting it done or you totally. know, you, you, fit, you find something elaborate to do and it mm-hmm. was cool once and the next time you're like well that was too much work right and right. and the classics are they they rarely disappoint and blow it out of the water whenever you want but it's like fall back on this because it's easy and a lot of times you know a lot a lot of times good enough is frankly good enough yeah so. and and be obsessed with making that margarita perfect instead of making a cocktail that's never existed before um because yeah they're classic for a reason they're they are what they are for good reason and you can find that using april on your margarita you love like that's great and you can have your own riffs but when you feel like you've perfected those classic cocktails there can feel more a sense of accomplishment than well i, I put this in this because i wanted to and like it tastes pretty good so that's like that's how I do it now because everyone loves to have what they do, you know, their margarita. Um, and so I always tell people, I'm like, get the, get the ingredients and mess around with your proportions a little bit, mess around with how long you shake it or, you know, put a grapefruit peel in it when you shake it, you know, do that, but don't buy a whole bottle of something and start putting it in everything. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. My my final comment on that would just be, yeah, I feel like people want to run out and have to then buy another thirty or forty dollar mm-hmm. bottle of something, and it just feels like where people just end up with this melange of stuff that they right. they never use. And to your right. point, like you know, if, oh, you want to add grapefruit liqueur? Why not a grapefruit peel instead? Right. Like get a little bit of essence in there, like way cheaper and easier. So, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, anything else we didn't get to today that you want to talk about at all? Getting- Oh man, uh, I don't know. I feel like this was great. I feel like we we talked about a lot of uh, of good things. You know, we we've been like, you know, the the pivot f- during COVID, and now kind of like the pivot back to more normality is kind of what we're going through. And I think that the only thing I like I'm constantly telling people is that in the chaos and the uncertainty and the awfulness that was the is currently uh, happening. There are so many things that we were able to change and look at and uh, streamline and maximize in restaurants. And I think that the restaurants you see thriving and existing right now were, are because they pivoted and made, you know, the, the adjustments, you know, I think about, you know, growing up playing baseball and hearing my, my brother, who is my coach is just like constantly, like it's a game of adjustments, a game of adjustments. Like you're just constantly evaluating and adjusting. Um, and I think that it's exactly true about, you know, the restaurant and bar industry. If you're just, the, you know, the day that you think what you're doing today will work a month from now, uh, is the day you start slipping, you know, it's every single day you're looking at how do we, you know, how do we make things faster, better, smarter, more perfect for the guests. Um, and so, yeah, I think just for, for the general public to kind of know that, you know, the restaurants you see open today are, uh, made some savvy and, and, you know, smart, pivots and choices and I think that you know it is it's wise to have grace and understanding with a restaurant that had 30 items and now has 15 because you know maybe your favorite thing is harder to get or is closed two days a week um but like that's allowing them to actually be profitable you know I 
wanted to go to Union Loafers on Sunday more than anything and saw they were closed. And I was like, God, good for you. You know, and like that should be the response of like, you're not open on Sunday. Like your whole staff gets Sunday off and or like just less stress. Like, good. Good for you. Like I want that chicken salad sandwich bad but you deserve <laughs> to have the, the day off if that's you know what works for the business and i think that more than ever that you know I, I i hope people understand that like these you know the, the industry got shaken up so hard that uh, i hope we see more places close one two days a week i i really do because the you know, the the folks that are still in the industry, you know, busting their ass, like, all had to, all spoke up, and the people in charge were like, well, okay, well, what needs to change so that, you know, we're able to operate with a staff that wants to be here and with fewer people, and so it, it, it excites me to see those changes, and, I, and I'm sure for a while we will see them. That's cool. I um, recently... You know, knowing that one, we all went through, are going through our own mm-hmm. personal hell, but few industries, you know, yours being up there got mm-hmm. racked as as bad as anybody. And mm-hmm. I was at a, a, a restaurant here in town and um, went in on Friday night, closer to the kitchen closing, and they told us, they sat us at the bar, and bartender comes up, asks what we'd like to drink. Hey, we heard the kitchen's closing. We actually want to put in our food order first, mm-hmm. and we got our heads chopped off by the bartender. Whoa! And and the rest of the evening was not great after mm-hmm. that kind of start. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't recover well. But you know, I think too, in terms of just patience and grace, like you know, you can do the self righteous thing and you know, go go on Yelp and you know, mm-hmm. you know, feel good about yourself. But like, I emailed the GM and I said, hey, like I know that uh, not knowing the GM, I just punched up there. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, like, first of all, I know you guys have been through hell, you mm-hmm. know, as an industry. Right. This happened. I'm not angry, mm-hmm. but I feel like you should know. Right. And, um, yeah, I feel like us all, like, as we learn how to move going forward, but also mm-hmm. just, you know, try to give each other a little bit of patience as opposed yeah. to, why can't you make this perfect for me all the time? Right. Well, what do you think might have happened to that person, you know, right. in the past day or two, you know? Right. You know, are they worried about rent or whatever? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think yeah. I think in terms of also, like, quality of life, to your point in the industry, mm-hmm. um, people used to working all the time, mm-hmm. maybe not getting paid a ton, um, and, still, and just never having time off for themselves. Right. Yeah, it is. It's such a it, – it's a strange thing because you, as the guests, are – a pain guest who who chose this establishment out of hundreds you know and it's it is it's it's unacceptable and awful to be to to have that experience um but it is also yes so so much perspective and and requires a lot of humility to say like well shit i'm hungry but like you you had a way worse night than I had <laughs> and like what's going on that would cause this, you know, it doesn't mean I'm, I am going to go back there, you know? And I, that's what I always tell people. I'm like, before, like before you write the bad review or, you know, want to demand a manager, like the most powerful thing you can do is just not go back and tell the people that you, recommend like hey like this was the experience i had you know that and and that's way more powerful than a yelp review that's way you know it's like your like your experience that you communicate to your friends you know that's that's the thing that that i fear most i'm like the people that i want in aren't writing yelp reviews they're not writing google reviews but what they are doing is they're telling their friends i went to this place it was awesome or i went to this place like we had like we can't wait to go back or they're saying, I went to this place, it was okay. Rather go to Louie. Rather go, you know, it's like, that's that's what, you know, people are, are listening to these days way more than thumbing through, you know, especially in your city. You're like, oh, it's Saint, I live in St. Louis. I'm going to thumb through Yelp to see where I want to go. It's like, no, I'm going. Chris told me this place was cool. I can't wait to go there. Um, but, yeah, it's, 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 it's real. And we luckily, like the the reason we are 
surviving and thriving is because our staff is unbelievable you know and i could not stress that more of like we 100 percent rely every single day on the you know 80 to 90 people that we have employed that just like they make it happen and they and they you know i'd like to think that you know they're not having that outburst of frustration with a guest but at the same time i'm like but if they did i'd understand you know not remotely condoning it but i'm like when you get there at 8 30 and are prepping up a kitchen as the gm and then have to switch over and work this and then have to come back and do this until close because no one can work you don't have staff like it's it's never been more draining than it is and and now we're dealing with hey i have sniffles okay well don't come to work for x amount of time go get a covid test even though you're vaccinated you know that's that's my (laughs) hell right now of hey we're staffed we have three people who probably just have a common cold but we can't risk them being in the building um and that i mean that's not going to change for a minute like that's going to (laughs) be that's difficult but well, thank you to you and your team and communally to the industry for persevering or whatever that we're, you know, <laughs> we're trying to do because, God, it is tense. And, um, and is, thank you. Yeah. We love it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the honest truth is like we – that's, you know, when talking to the staff, it's like this, this is tough. It's, it hasn't really been as tough as it is, but like – the people who are still in it, still doing it, like, love it. And that is, yeah, unfortunately for <laughs> my wife and certain people's families, we we love it. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for coming in today, Tim. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you, Chris. It was All great. Right. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you liked the interview, the transcript and show notes are located at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself, Chris LeBeau. Subscribe to avoid missing an episode. And if you think this is good stuff, share it with a friend or review us on your listening platform. And check out our newsletter, Cocktail Confidential. Remember, the best way to get better at mixology is to practice. And the best way to do that is in the company of friends and family. Happy cocktailing, everybody. Mm-hmm.